Islamic terrorism strikes again at the heart of New York City. I'm Bill Bennett. Welcome to The Bill Bennett Show. We're going to focus in on the terror attack with Congressman Ron DeSantis in just a few minutes. And then we'll get the latest information on the Republican push for tax reform from Budget Committee member Congressman Dave Bratt. But first, a few thoughts on yesterday's terror attack. It killed eight people and left another dozen injured. Chris Beach joins me. Chris, uh, it struck me that, you know, we've, we're now, I don't know, less than a day from that attack in New York. A few thoughts. Uh, a lot of people are talking about immigration policy, and I think that's just fine. I think that's exactly right. But we have to also have to deal with the, in some ways, harder question, more complicated question. What do you do with people who come here and are radicalized here? Um, you know, physical distance doesn't mean so much anymore in terms of, you know, information, in terms of what people get in their heads. We know that. As we're talking, you know, these uh, these uh, uh, tech giants are testifying on the Hill. These are This is international communication. You can be anywhere and soak up this poison, uh, the po- poison of radical jihad. And this guy apparently did so here, and we have many other, we have many other cases. Nevertheless, you stop what you can stop, and there's no reason to make the problem worse. Uh, concede that there's a lot of homegrown terrorism, or at least terrorists who, you know, grow up in the United States listening to this propaganda. Uh, but uh, why make it worse uh, with immigration programs that are not necessary, uh, either for diversity or for uh, growing the country? Um, I, this doesn't seem to me to make sense to to add uh, to our to our problems. Any thoughts on that? I think I agree with everything you said, and, and one thing that jumped out to me, uh, you talk about the homegrown nature and these threats, and they're sort of the soft threats now, you know, not the big attacks, uh, not the 9-11 type attacks, and one thing that jumped out to me in the coverage is that, you know, we've, our law enforcement has been on the alert for these types, these types of attacks since uh, the Nice attack and the Berlin attacks and the ones in London, and... Uh, according to CBS, there are roughly 150 truck rental locations in the New York City, New Jersey yeah. area, sure. and authorities have been in contact with all of them, uh, worried that some sort of attack like this may happen, and this one still escaped their radar. Apparently, he rented it from a Home Depot in Passaic. And so this just tells you the scale of what we're trying to deal with from a law enforcement perspective. and how difficult it is to stop these these smaller attacks. One's tempted to, yeah. I, I, smaller, I think, is better. I don't like soft. I'm not criticizing you. I've heard this everywhere. It's not softer and harder. It's smaller and larger. Nothing soft about this attack yesterday, you know? I mean, it was just it was a smaller attack, more opportunistic, um, simpler, um, simpler to plan, simpler to execute, but uh, nothing, nothing soft about it. Um, yeah, I, I think it was Sebastian Gorka who was saying last night, um, you know, we can't rely on truck rental personnel, you know, to save the country. Uh, right. Fair enough. At the same time, you know, one might want to think about certain policy. Um, the president's talked about immigration policy, people from certain countries. Uh, is it going to be a violation of constitutional rights or civil rights to say if uh, people try to rent trucks who are from the following countries? Um, you, right. you, yeah, oh, you see where I'm going. We'll give extra scrutiny. I mean, I, it's rumored. I don't know. It's true. We haven't tracked it down, but I've heard a couple times that this guy's first name, Safula, is that what it is? Uh, translated from the Arabic into English, sort of Allah, you know, 
Okay, here's policy. Don't rent a truck to anybody whose first name is Sword of Allah. And don't let into the country anybody whose first name is Sword of Allah. I mean, I don't mean to make this uh, absurd, but it is kind of absurd. It's back to that that old uh, almost tired saw now about, uh, you know, uh, uh, inspections at airports. You know, the 90-year-old gran- grandmother versus, the you know, the 30-year-old uh, Muslim guy who is uh, sweating and uh, not, not wanting to be inspected. So, um, you know, let's be smart about this. But I, I agree, 150 truck rental places, you can't rely on the truck rental people. Uh, it does seem to me a few things are suggested. Better penetration of uh, thought groups, study groups, uh, encounter groups, uh, round tables uh, that uh, form in communities. Um, so I think undercover people. I think you got to surveil the mosques. Uh, to see what people see what people are saying and back to immigration policy i don't see any reason why we have to take people from these countries unless they're needed um you know there's the accepted categories relatives and people who are here for essential purposes of of the u.s um and and those other uh, those other exceptions but otherwise why do we need fifty thousand people for diversity we have plenty we have plenty of uh, plenty of diversity but, you know, keep eyes and ears open. Um, there is a hero here, and that is that cop, that police officer, who got to the scene very quickly and shot this guy in the abdomen, didn't kill him, which is good. We could maybe now get some more information. Uh, shot him in the leg, maybe. We don't know. We've heard different reports. But the guy is alive, but was uh, obviously stopped and disabled by, by this, uh, by this brave, uh, brave police officer. There are the situations where people give off no hints, no clues. Um, I'll be interested to see what the what the investigation of him uh, turns up in regard to his being an Uber driver. Uh, I've been in Ubers. I've been in Ubers a lot lately. You and I have been in Ubers. Uh, my, my family and I have been in Ubers. A lot of uh, Middle Eastern guys are driving those uh, Uber vehicles. Um do you wonder when you get in? Yeah, sure, you wonder. Uh, but people seem friendly and nice and have a 4.8 rating, so you don't uh, give a second thought on it. Comment? Yeah, I, it's not so much um, the the Uber here, but maybe maybe there's a it, – it's actually interesting. Uh, Uber, like some of these other big tech companies, has a ton of data that they can use, so they can probably go back and see if this guy was canvassing that area, neighborhood, scouting out locations. Um, but I think this speaks to the larger issue of social media and data, and it runs up into the first the First Amendment. But this guy had ISIS related material on his social media accounts, according to law enforcement officials. And if you see stuff like that, I don't know why we can't crack down harder. I mean, yes, you run into and they civil can liberties, see stuff but... like that, right? They can see stuff like that. Oh, sure, sure, they can absolutely see stuff like that. And I know a lot of these tech companies cooperate with the intelligence community. Uh, but there has to come a point, I, th- I would think, that once you once you flag some ISIS-related material on your social media account, that their eyes have to be on you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's an open question. I don't know the answer to the question. Are we doing enough to surveil? I know how difficult it is. I know how intense it is, uh, how intensive it is, how many man hours you need to surveil just one person. Right. But uh, some of this stuff is, um, I imagine, I imagine presents itself pretty obviously. You know, you hear you, you. You know, there are discussion groups connected with the mosques. You you go to those and get somebody in on those and find out what people are saying or talking about. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that uh, you know, as as people are saying, this is the first major terror attack in New York since nine eleven. 
That's uh, that's a long time. That's uh, 16 years, right? And um, pretty good for New York, as big a place and as complicated a place and as many people in that area, we imagine, who are contemplating harm to the city. Yeah, it is. I mean, they got lucky in that, what was it, the uh, truck bomb uh, that didn't go off? That's right. Was that in, uh, yeah, there in were a couple Times Square. There's yep. a couple of lucky ones, but they have done a great job preventing but the luck goes both ways, too, you know? The luck goes both ways. So. Right. Um, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Didn't mean to interrupt that. No, but I'd be interested to see, you know, um, one of the reasons that New York, in, in our view, was so safe is that Giuliani and Bloomberg took some very hard stances when it came to uh, surveillance, to community surveillance, to monitoring mosques, and uh, Bill de Blasio rolled some of that back. And, you know, we've heard Bratton and Ray Kelly and others talk about this, and it'll be interesting to see if, hopefully not, those policies had any impact on something like this, and maybe this guy had gone to a mosque, it had talked to people in the community, and we don't have that information anymore. Yeah, well, anyway... Um... Stay alert, uh, keep your eyes and ears open, and, um, you know, but at the same time, it's not the job of the truck rental companies. Uh, it's partly the job of each of us, but it's really the job of law enforcement uh, and the government to uh, to keep us safe. So keep us safe. And, uh, yes, I, I understand a lot of the terrorism we see is homegrown, Orlando and, and, and others, and some of it people don't give away clues, like in, uh, what was it? San Bernardino, do I have that right? Um, I always say the wrong city. It was San Bernardino, right? It, there well, were some clues there, but not, but not many. Well, that's um, some. Right. Okay, some. Fair enough. Well, there would have been more clues if the people who were close to them had spoken up, right? I mean, if they did Right, the, the people who saw people coming and going with packages late at night in their garage. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah. But, uh, and, and there again, you have the individual citizen. But uh, bottom line here for this purpose, this discussion, why make the problem worse? With, uh, you know, this diversity lottery program that doesn't make sense. We'll be talking more about this. We welcome your thoughts, of course, as always. Any last thoughts, Chris? Yeah, no, you, uh, you're very careful to point out terms soft earlier versus simple, um, which you're right. We shouldn't use the term soft. But another one that people keep using in this is uh, lone wolf again. And I think that does a disservice to this. It just doesn't help this uh, Americans at large understanding the problem we're confronting when people keep using this term. Yeah, it's as if there's a disjunction in the world's divided two things, which is people operating solo and solely on their own, you know, their own uh, notions of things, or some massive directive from some central location of uh, the caliphate. Um, no, as we'd say in philosophy, insufficient options. Um, it's in the air. Uh, it's in the air for a lot of people. I think it's in the air at some of the mosques. It's in the air at some of these gatherings. And that means it's not a lone wolf. It's it's part it's part of the atmosphere. Um, uh, analogies, you know, if you if you if you're a contemporary person and you, you know, you decide to uh, take, forget that, forget that. I was going off in the wrong wrong direction. Um, it, it's in the air and it's on the internet, and people are influenced by what they hear and what they see. Most important part of this is what's in a person's mind and what's in their mind can come from any number of sources. It can be self-generated, but for the most part, you know, this uh, Allahu Akbar stuff is, uh, you know, comes from, you know, a, 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 an international perspective uh, on, um, on Islam, which is shared by a lot of people, both in and outside the United States. 
So when one hears that, one has to take uh, take take some measure of alarm, take some measure of uh, of concern, and perhaps in some situations, uh, merited uh, reported to the police. And I think people need to overplay this, not underplay it. If in doubt, uh, tell somebody. And uh, I know that's been done in my family, and um, that seems to me to make seems to me to make sense. But again, why make the problem worse with these? Uh, unnecessary immigration programs. We'll continue to talk about this topic. Uh, I'm having a debate on this next week, and um, I would appreciate any advice people have. I'm debating at a college uh, in uh, California, and it's uh, with Michael Chertoff, who is uh, the, uh, I think, the first. Wasn't he the first? Or no, I guess it was Tom Ridge, um, Secretary of Homeland Security. And uh, uh, I'm taking the position defending Trump because I think he was on to something and still is on to something. And uh, we, shall, uh, we shall see. All right, let's move on. Let's get to our interview on this, uh, on these matters with Congressman Ron DeSantis, 6th District of Florida, one of our favorite people. Here we go. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, Ron DeSantis is the congressman for Florida's 6th District. He's the chairman of the House National Security Subcommittee. He's the right guy to talk to, one of our favorite people in the House. Uh, Congressman DeSantis, thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me. New York, worst attack since 9-11. Your thoughts? Well, I've always wondered, uh, after September 11th and some of the other attacks that were attempted, uh, the large-scale attacks, we've done a pretty good job of preventing that. This takes some planning. Uh, people are going to leave more clues if they're trying to do something like that. Uh, but I always wondered why uh, first al-Qaeda, now the Islamic State, uh, didn't do some of these more mundane attacks where you're just attacking random people. You see it, obviously, a lot in Europe. And I think with some of the things that have happened in the United States, I think that they have transitioned to more of a, a smaller scale attacks against civilians that may knock out 5, 10, 15 people uh, or more at a time. Um, but not necessarily the spectacular 9-11 type uh, style attacks. Now, the upshot of that is much more difficult to prevent those types of attacks. Yeah. I don't, we're yeah. getting more information. I don't know that we knew that much about this guy. And if somebody's inspired to join ISIS and they want to get behind a truck and ram over a bunch of civilians, very difficult to prevent that. Uh, obviously, the one way you could have prevented that is to not have policies like the diversity lottery where people are coming in without any regard for their merit or whether they actually have allegiance to the United States. But that is you know, a policy change that obviously Congress would need to make. Yeah, I, I react very much the same way you do. These uh, simpler, more opportunistic attacks uh, and other things that I've thought of that I haven't given voice to because I want to give people ideas, you know. Um, but, but yeah, I've, I've wondered about that as well. I think we've also all wondered, well, maybe we're just doing a great job, and so these things are occurring in Europe, a uh, greater density of, uh, of uh, radical Islamist populations and maybe not as good in terms of prevention as, as U.S. law enforcement. But these things are relatively easy and, 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 and easy to prevent. One, one aspect of this I've been hearing endlessly since the... Uh, attack from mostly from democrat officials which is well these are aimed to 
you know, disrupt our way of life and to keep New Yorkers, in this case, from living their lives. I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I think the the main purpose is to is to kill people and uh, to destroy the infidel and to the degree that it can uh, hurt and harm us. That, that's what they want. I'm not sure they think this is going to send the city into a tailspin. I agree with you. And, and the thing is, is when I was uh, in the military, I spent some time down at Gitmo. And these guys, when the FBI would interview them, they were very honest about their motivation. They said, look, this is what we believe. We are pledged to wage war right. against people that right. will not submit to our worldview. And so that's what somebody, when they're pledging allegiance to ISIS after doing an attack or right before doing an attack like that, their motivation is not, ooh, maybe I can disrupt the way of life in New York a little bit. No, it's this is I'm waging war against people that will not believe as I do and, and, and share this ideology. And that is the core motivation. All right. I don't want to I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I, clearly this diversity visa lottery is getting a lot of criticism and maybe we can get rid of it. I, this is part of what Tom Cotton, I guess, was thinking about with his legislation and no doubt stuff you've you've talked about and recommended. Will we see changes, do you think, to um, to uh, our policy such as the elimination of this program? Well, I think we should vote, vote that out of the House. Um, now, the media uh, Trump tweeted that this is a Chuck Schumer special, and it was. Schumer put this into an immigration bill, I think it was 20-some years ago. What the media is saying is, oh, well, there were Republicans who voted for that. And then what the media is saying is, oh, well, the diversity lottery was going to get ri- uh, going to go away in the Gang of Eight bill, and a lot of Republicans opposed that. Well, obviously, there were a hundred other reasons to oppose the Gang of Eight bill. So I think it would be clarifying in light of some of the back and forth about this you just have a straight up or down vote, no comprehensive bill, just do we want a diversity lottery or not? And I think it would pass the House to get rid of it, and then we see what would happen in the Senate. It's just not a, a smart way. We're the most diverse country in the world. The idea that we just need right. to randomly do immigration through through chance uh, to try to increase diversity, is just, it just doesn't make sense, especially now. So I think the merit-based system that, that Cotton wants, I think, is the right way to go. But I don't even think you have to even do that whole ball of wax right now. I think this is fresh. I think that this is something that the American people would like to see discontinued. And we haven't done a good job in the Congress of really making the Democrats take a lot of tough votes so far this Congress. I think that would be a tough vote for them because ideologically they've become so extreme on immigration, both legal and illegal immigration, that I think you would see a lot of them probably oppose our efforts to, uh, to get rid of a program that just hasn't worked. In the 18 hours since this occurred, it's given me some new thoughts on this. I have a debate next week in California. Uh, sorry to say, with a former member of the former member of the Bush administration on the whole immigration policy thing and Trump's policy and so on. But you know, the whole question about these these <clears throat> immigration from these countries. Um, what do we, what do we need this immigration for anyway? I mean, as you point out, we're an incredibly diverse country. Why take chances uh, with uh, people from countries where there is a lot of terrorism? Uh, you know, the president said, let's just let's just wait a while. Let's just have a moratorium. What's wrong with that idea? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's okay. we've lost sight of, at least the Washington establishment has lost sight of what the purpose of immigration is. The purpose is to benefit the American people, to right. benefit right. our country and civil society. It's not because foreigners have a right to come here whenever yeah. they choose. But at the Good. debate over the Trump travel restrictions, a lot of the Democrats and some Republicans were basically saying, look, you know, you, you can't 
deny somebody from war-torn Somalia the ability to come here, and it was more from the best interest of the would-be immigrant, not the best interest uh, of the country. And so from our perspective, there is no burning need to bring people in from some okay. of these countries that are in dire straits and that we can't be sure the people who come here, whether they're going to adopt their way of life. And I mean, I know you've covered it on your, you know, your different programs, but like what's happened in Minnesota, where you've had all the Somali yes, refugees kind of in this one area, that's produced a lot of terrorism and a lot of radicalization, and there's not been an assimilation there. So the question is, do you want to perpetuate that? If it hasn't worked, then obviously you would want to do something different. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking while you were talking about the incredibly diverse nation, I was watching CNN, God forbid. Anyway, I go around the dial. <laughs> but I was watching CNN interview all these people in lower Manhattan. Six people in a row were interviewed. All six of them had had foreign accents, you know. I mean, and, the, and these are all Americans, you know. But, I mean, the, the, it makes your point. It's not as if we're this, uh, you know, sort of pure uh, leave-it-to-beaver, uh, you know, white Anglo-Saxon uh, country you know through and through it's a, it's a very diverse country i want to i want to i want to ask you about i want to switch gears if we can to uh, the whole um, um, russia situation I, my, let me let me jump in here in the interest of time i want to get to the heart of it will the committees of the congress investigate um the the dossier uh and the Re- democrats involvement in that to the same degree with the same degree of scrutiny that uh, uh, they are investigating the possible Trump connection, and do you think Mueller will as well? So the answer to the first question is, I hope we will. We should. There's guys like me that, that want to do that. We have finally received some of the information about the dossier. Now, I haven't had a chance to review it, but members of the Intelligence Committee have, uh, so I'm going to probably get briefed on that today. Um, but the Congress has spent how many months with this Trump-Russia collusion, and up to this point, there's not been any evidence of any of that, and yet they do it time and time again. I'm hoping that those investigations are going to be brought to a close very shortly. I've been urging the Speaker, um, you know, when we're out here not investigating, and this has changed recently, but we hadn't been willing to investigate the Clinton Foundation. We hadn't been willing to investigate some of these other things, but yet we're going to do all this stuff on Trump-Russia just because the media tells us to, even though there's no evidence there. So I think that last week was an inflection point because we, we did start the finally the Uranium One, with this confidential informant. We did up the ante on Fusion GPS. And then we also, and this didn't get as much attention, we did the uh, Comey investigation, finally started that. So that's going to be how he handled all the Clinton material. And I think that's going to bleed into the Fusion GPS and whether he relied on that to do any surveillance of Trump or Trump's associates. With Mueller... I find it hard to believe Mueller would be interested in any of that. I mean, I think if you look at how Mueller has stacked his office, he's got 16 prosecutors. Many of them are very strong Democratic donors. Uh, I think he's trying to do anything he can to build a case against people in Trump's orbit and potentially the president himself. I just don't think there's evidence of that, but I, uh, that, that he'll actually be able to succeed. But I think that's what he wants to do. I see no evidence that he's really going to be interested in any type of democratic malfeasance. I mean, that's just my instinct and that's just what I'm seeing. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. If it's there, I think he needs to, he needs to go, go for it. But um, I just haven't seen that yet. And, um, and you look at how they've handled, I mean, this Papadopoulos guy, 
Um, you know, he basically told the FBI, like, he had certain meetings before he was on the campaign when it turned out he actually had already been on the campaign. That's really not a material offense because there was no underlying crime there with anything he did. Compare that to Hillary. You remember, she came to the Congress of the Benghazi Committee, and she said that her attorneys turned over all work-related emails. That was demonstrably false. She said that she sent or received no emails marked classified. Demonstrably false. She said her attorneys hand went through every single email and made decisions. That was not true. Did anything, did they open up a 1001 investigation on her for, for lying? No. Yeah. Yeah. He can lie and go on. So I think like just the, the lack of ferocity with how Hillary was treated versus the really just overbearing nature of how they're going after uh, the stuff with the so-called Russia investigation, uh, the Papadopoulos, that was a very aggressive um, prosecution there for, for, an, for an offense that was you know, very minor, and especially compared to some of the, the falsehoods that Hillary has peddled, not just uh, in official statements, but actually under oath before the Congress. All right, fair enough. We we got to let you go here in a minute or two, but I, it, it just strikes me. It's interesting what you say about Mueller. I mean, he is supposed to be looking at Russian Russia influence on the election, and it does, there do seem to be uh, there does seem to be a fair amount of evidence about the Democrats' uh, efforts here to uh, influence the election through Russia. So it's uh, yes, odd and inappropriate and wrong for him to ignore it. But we do. And this is the point I want to come back to. We do control the Congress in that we have the chairmanships, right, in the House and the Senate and these committees and subcommittees. So, you know, we need to play, be as tough as the Democrats are. They're tenacious. They go after it. They go after our side. We have to be sure that, uh, you know, Democrats don't get off scot-free in this whole business. Well, not, Bill, think about it. You had the Democratic Party potentially illegally paying for this because they funneled it through a law firm to hide the true nature of the expenditure, but they funnel it through Perkins Cole. Perkins Cole pays Fusion GPS. Fusion GPS paying Michael Steele. Who? Where is he getting his information from? A lot of agents uh, of the Russian government. Right. So that was collusion with with Russians to get dirt on Trump. So anything that's been alleged with Trump has not even risen to that level of of what we already know happened with the Clintons and okay. Fusion GPS, and yet. Um, the media just looks at that as like, oh, it's old news because it doesn't fit their narrative. So they've had a pre-cooked narrative about Trump-Russia collusion from the day after the election. And anything that can give them grist for that mill, they're going to pump up and make it the biggest thing ever. Anything that undercuts that, they're going to try to minimize. And that's exactly what they've done with the, with the Clinton Fusion GPS stuff. That is, and I don't know whether it was illegal to, to work with those Russians. I think it may have been illegal how they, how they sent the money and funneled it through the law firm. Um, but bottom line is Trump is not even alleged to have done anything that rises yeah. to that level. All right. Well, you said you hope the committees would uh, do what you can to make sure that they do because uh, it's, it's, so, it's so important. And, you know, we don't always control these committees, the House and Senate. So... Uh, it is uh, it is critical. I, I want to um, say on air what I told you when I saw you in person the other night. Saw three of you at the podium, Peter King and you and Devin Nunes, and I said, this is another good reason to be a Republican. Look at those three. You're real stalwart, uh, uh, Ron DeSantis, and we're so proud you're there and, and, and lucky to have you there. Well, thanks so much, Bill. Appreciate you uh, following this investigation and keep at it because we need to get this right. Yep, you betcha. Thanks. Ron DeSantis, Florida 6th. Thank you so much, sir. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. The Bill Bennett Show.
Okay, folks, before we get to my conversation about tax reform with Congressman Dave Bratt, I need to tell you about Casper. Not the friendly ghost, but something else. Casper's a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Casper mattresses provide all the support the human body needs in all the right places. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. The breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. There are three mattress models available. The original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. And... Casper is not just a mattress company. They offer a wide array of products to ensure an overall better sleep experience. Casper can offer such affordable prices because they cut out the middleman and they sell directly to you, the consumer. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper.com, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. Casper is designed, developed, and assembled in the U.S., they offer no hassle returns if you're not completely satisfied. Your Casper will be delivered right to your door in a small, how do they do that, sized box. They offer free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. And you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. So here's a special offer to listeners of The Bill Bennett Show. Start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash bill and using promo code bill at checkout. That's casper.com slash bill and use promo code bill for $50 off any mattress. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. David Brad is a congressman for the 7th District of Virginia. You remember that famous win over Eric Cantor? He is a member of the House Budget Committee, and we're delighted to have him. It would be an affectation, uh, Congressman, for me not to ask you about the swirl in Washington right now with all the Russia stuff. What's your What's your take on it? Yeah, well, I heard uh, Devin Nunes last night uh, on the uh, Laura Ingram show, and he was about as clear as you could be. I mean, he just said, if you don't think the FBI knew about the dossier, you know, I got a bridge to sell you. And right. I think that's the most devastating piece that's come out of all this. You know, now Podesta's brother stepping down as well. And so, I mean, you know, on the on the Trump side of the equation, you got a few guys who had prior business activities, but the, the White House said properly it's not related to the campaign, and there's no Russia collusion yet. But on the Democrat side, I mean, you got $2 billion coming into that Clinton Foundation and, you know, 20% of the U.S. uranium going abroad. I mean, the, the common person yeah. across the country is just scratching their head, and they know something's up. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, as someone pointed out the other day, there was a lot of interest in the dossier when it looked like it was owned by Republicans, but now that right. it's owned by Democrats, seems a lot less. Will, uh, because this is a question I, I've been wondering about, we control these committees. I mean, we chair these committees. Uh, Republicans in the Senate and the House, will those committees look in uh, to the dossier and the Democrats? Well, that's what Nunez was saying. They've been looking since March, and they're getting you know blocked by the Democrats and by the Justice Department and by the you know the DCCC, of course, and you know all the actors. And so, but it's time to step up our side. You know, Paul Ryan is you know a plus on public policy, but our side fights like Cub Scouts, right? The Democrats. 
they're they're brawlers. Yeah, and yeah. we do own the committees and the the American people. They voted for this. The Trump vote was to drain the swamp more than anything else. It's it, I think it's almost more important just to reclaim the country. You know, get religious free speech back in order. Just some of these crazy things going on on the campuses across the country. Sure, sure. And that's the stuff that just really strikes the American people. They're like, what has gone wrong with our country? No, I know, but you know, but one gets the feeling, even though we have. To just take the one committee in the Senate, you know, that uh, Richard Burr here, my home state yep. of North Carolina, that he's in charge of. Um, but, you know, it seems like there's more Mark Warner than there is Richard Burr a lot of right. the time. And right. I just wish we were, you know, do, do we know how to play offense? I know this is this is how you got into office. Right. No, I, I don't think we do right now. In our, I mean, I just look, the analogy is, is the Obamacare piece, right? Yeah, I mean, we all right. said we're going to repeal right. it. And then if you look at the structure of it, we came in with this huge top-down federal health care plan because we didn't want to rock the boat too much. And it's right. kind of the same thing on these oversight committees. If you inject competition in economics, you know what happens next, right? You're going to rock the boat a little bit until you get to a new and better equilibrium. And okay. we weren't willing to even do that on our key signature issue. And same on oversight. We don't want to get the suburban mom and dad, you know, to, you're thinking that the Republicans are these, you know, brawlers that are going to destabilize the markets or whatever. And I think it's a huge error. People, I think, have an innate craving for justice inside of them. That's what it is to be human. And if if you see injustice, uh, it's very important that our side speaks out very loudly on that issue. Yeah, and uh, you know the media is going to hate us anyway. So you know, right. you know, as, as William William Blake said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. It's right. not sinning. That's right. It's kind of the opposite, but you might as well be bold about it. I don't have to tell right. you that. Let's um, let's talk about tax reform because I don't. Yep. I hope we don't have a repeat of Obamacare. Front and center, uh, the House plans to unveil unveil a plan. Um, what? How does it look? Uh, what do you think? Is this a real tax reform plan, or is it getting softer and softer as the days go on? Yeah, well, it started real, and it's it's still real. Kevin Brady's a you know good principled leader, and they're working with Paul Ryan to keep the basic structure, but you're fighting against the swamp. And with respect to the Obamacare now, this one is different in my view. I I did not like the the health care plan that came out, but this thing right. I do like. And one of the reasons, the process is much better, too. They, they incorporated, they had the gang of six, two from the House, two from the Senate, two from the White House, to ensure we were all writing the same, you know, sheet music. Good. And so now we've all agreed to that. It, it's, it's a pro-growth bill for real, right? The C-Corp and the S-Corp and the immediate expensing uh, is an expensive provision, but that's going to launch some growth. And then, you know, a middle-class tax cut, that's from Bernie through Trump. And I, I always just like bringing up the other side of the equation, right? We're going to get, you know, nailed with a press, as you just said. Uh, but it's key to point out to listeners, all you got to do is beat your competitor. And the Democrats, they can go Google to make sure I'm not making up numbers here, but they had a progressive caucus budget. Uh, the biggest one on the Democrat side, 107 votes, increased taxes by $10 trillion, not yeah. billion. Yeah. That's half yeah. the economy. Increased yeah. taxes by $10 trillion, increased spending by $11 trillion. And have more debt and deficit than the Republican plan that cuts taxes. So it's always good to compare yourself with your, you know, your competitor. There will be a real, as far as you can tell at this point, a real middle class tax cut, correct? 
Well, that's going to be the tough one because they haven't announced the brackets yet. And then, you know, everyone thinks they're in the middle class. It's kind of an American phenomenon. Yeah, sure. And But, you know, the average family income in Virginia is 60 grand. So that when I think middle, that's what I think of as middle. But if you're in New sure. York or L.A., you know, the middle's 150 or something. And if you start going up into that range, I don't think we can afford, you okay. know, the, the, the depth of tax cut we want to show the, the middle class. But if it's sixty to a hundred, most of those people yeah. will get a tax cut. You think? Yeah, I'm guess? hoping. It, I'm hoping it's in that range that we we keep it because then we can afford afford to get that done. And what about the corporate tax rate? Is that is that more important in the end? The corporate tax rate reduction. That the the corporate and the S corp and the immediate expensing are the big pro growth pieces. They are, and then okay. the the middle yeah. class piece is just the middle class hasn't seen a wage increase in thirty years. Wages have right. been roughly flat, and that's why you've got discontent across Bernie all the way through the Midwestern states to Trump. And uh, we're the party that got it, right? The left's been off doing identity politics. Yeah. I heard a funny one the other day. The left has said, we got to get back to just doing class warfare, right? Yeah. <laughs> they, they forgot about basic Marxism. And yeah. they're off doing, you know, postmodern, you know, right. postmodernism. There you go. All right, he's he's going for the philosophy already. We're not there yet. Hang on, we'll get there. We'll get there. Let me and, and he's he's baiting me. He's saying these phrases, no. these things to to get me to get me to bite, Congressman Brat. Great. Um, let me put forward a proposition. You tell me if I'm right or wrong, and then and then the question I'm going to ask you. You come forward to a, with a plan. Let's say we come forward with a plan that really does the things we want: reduces corporate tax rate, S corp, all that. And reduces taxes on the middle class. But it also has the effect of reducing somewhat, a little bit, uh, the highest tax bracket. Uh, obviously, uh, the, or the uh, how, much, uh, how much taxes the richest are paying. Obviously, the Democrats will be opposed to that. As you take the temperature of fellow Republicans, will they be opposed to it too? Just embarrassed to give something that don't, may make a lot of sense, but we simply can't stomach giving a tax cut to the, quote, rich, close quote. Yeah, that it's a 50-50 proposition and I don't think anybody's really dug in on that one. But okay. Republican, you know, standard, you know, philosophy is, hey, you know, we don't believe in this class warfare stuff, so if you're going to lower rates, you're going to lower rates. And if you do lower rates, right on the on the bottom two or three brackets, the rich by definition get those rate cuts cuz they're they also make that yeah. you know, lower income level. So that it yeah. just by definition they're going to end up getting rate cuts. Yep. And so the left is saying, you know, the 80% of the benefits go to the top 1%. And that's what they're talking about. The rich, S-corps, C-corps, you know, businesses. And so we've got to do a good job. The Wall Street Journal, who I don't always agree with, has done a very good job with Casey Mulligan and uh, Hassett and showing yeah, the economic literature is, is fairly sustained and showing that, you know, 70% of even the corporate rate reductions goes to wages, not to owners of capital. Okay. So even, okay. even if you want to play that game, the literature and economics is fairly clear on all that. And so we got to sell it. Paul Ryan and, and Mitch need to get out there and sell that proposition. President needs to sell this too, right? It's yeah, very exactly. Important. Yes. Okay. Right. Exactly. Uh, from where you sit, I, you know, politically, I think it's very important to get something passed, legislated. Will this get? Will this get passed? Is, is that is your best guess that it will, or or fifty fifty? Yeah, no, I think it will. And okay, I, I'm even optimistic on the this year kind of framework still. Right. I, I, I right. shouldn't be that optimistic. but I, Any I Democrats? We, 
yeah, we, I mean, we know uh, we might get a few Democrats even, and okay. if if we have to, if it's if it if it if something goes south, which it could, right? Wednesday we unleash it, and then the swamp comes into full effect, right? The the home sure. builders have already said they're in no, yep. and then there's some other provisions in there, you know, having to do with the expensing of inventories for auto dealers, and there's some there's some big legitimate you know concerns in there, so we got to get it right. But I think right. it passes. Good. Okay. Well, that will be a huge win for the for the president. Okay. Last uh, question. A uh, couple times we met. You said, "Want to come on and talk about Hegel and Kierkegaard?" Um, <laughs> That's right. Here, here's your go. What? What? Who's your guy? Hegel, Kierkegaard, Georg yeah, Wilhelm I mean, Friedrich Hegel, or Soren Kierkegaard? I, well, I'm a I'm a Judeo Christian tradition guy. So Jesus okay. and Moses are my guys. Oh, okay. I, you were just showing off right. then. Yeah, no, right. And you, I know you're a Hegel scholar, so I was just trying to get on the show. No, but I, <laughs> you got on the show. <laughs> I, I'm not a Hegel guy. I'm more a Kierkegaard guy. But, yeah, uh, good. Well, that's but, it, it, Kierkegaard's famous saying on Hegel. He said, if Hegel would have just said this is one of a infinite number of ways of looking at total reality, he, he, I think he's the smartest guy in the world. That's but right. The fact that he thinks his system is uniquely the only truth, he says he's relegated to the dustbin. I think it was also cool. Kierkegaard who said he builds castles in the air but lives in a doghouse. Right. Uh, anyway. That's right. Anyway. I, all right. I, it is great yeah. to talk to you. We're so glad you're there. And uh, stay at it. And uh, you're a great force of energy and intelligence. And we appreciate it. Thank you. I try. Hey, thank, and right. while, while I'm at it, have people go to DaveBrat.com. I explain all the votes. But I also have a book if people have a hard time falling asleep. It's called The American Underdog. Good, DaveBrat.com. Yeah, and I go into the whole Judeo-Christian tradition from soup to nuts, and right. uh, I think people enjoy it. That's, there's two phrases I haven't used, heard used together, the Judeo-Christian tradition from soup to nuts. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. Thanks, thanks Mr. Brat. Thank you very thanks, much. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, great as always. Thanks. You yep, bye. Just, uh, just a word about what Dave Brat was saying. I mean, he, you know, was a skeptic of skeptics. This is the guy who really was kind of a uh, John the Baptist. I'm thinking of Judeo-Christian. <laughs> he was there ahead of time, wasn't he, you know, saying something's going to happen. I mean, he was a precursor. He was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, uh, um, oh, for Pete's sakes. It was a foreshadowing. Uh... A foreshadowing, yeah, a type, I think is the technical term. But anyway, um and, uh, you know, when he defeated Eric Cantor, because he said, you know, it's just, this just doesn't work and we got to radicalize things and go for the heart of the matter, uh, he won and that was a huge upset. And he's still bringing his energy and intelligence to bear. But, um, but the point I want to make is he's been very, very skeptical of Washington, the Washington process, et cetera, et cetera, but is optimistic that we'll get a tax, uh, tax reform package, which is great to hear. And he would tell us otherwise if he believed otherwise. That's what I think. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joel Farkas is a director of the American Strategy Group, and I am honored to be a fellow of the American Strategy Group. Okay, Joel, welcome back. Thank you, Bill. Uh, the president, President Trump, is expected to nominate the next chairman of the Federal Reserve this week. He's also pushing hard to get tax reform done, and we could see a Republican bill as early as this week. And as if there isn't enough going on, another round of NAFTA negotiations are set to begin this month. So, here to explain this important economic news and its significance is our friend Joel Farkas, as I said, director of the American Strategy Group. Uh, and each week, the American Strategy Group brings us important conversations on the state of America's well-being. 
whether it's economic, cultural, or national security. Go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy to learn more. We welcome Joel back. Looks like President Trump is going to nominate Jerome Powell, Jay Powell, as the next Fed chair. What do you know about him? What do we know about him? What do we think of him? Is this a good choice? What should Powell do? Any of those or all of those, Joel? Well, there's, we don't know uh, as of today who he's going to nominate. Um, uh, Jerome Powell is, uh, has a unique situation in that there aren't a lot of critics of his. Um, he's, a, he's an existing uh, uh, Fed member. He has uh, a unique uh, characteristic in that he would be uh, not be a professor of economics. Um, he's, uh, his history is in the financial industry. And some of some of the people who don't like anything that President Trump does will, will will quickly point out that he would be the wealthiest Fed chair since the 1940s. Um, but having having said all that, there's a there's a reasonable a reasonable chance that President Trump might actually nominate two people. He actually may, and this is predictions which are generally not accurate, but he may. Um, uh, consider uh, John Taylor, the Stanford economist, uh-huh. uh, sure. and Jerome Powell. Powell, excuse me. Um, they might be. A, he might nominate a chair and a vice chair, and that would be an interesting. Uh, that would be an interesting uh, uh, move in that uh, he would basically fill two two positions. Someone who is uh, pretty much skilled in the financial industry, which is uh, Mr. Powell, and an economist who has a lot of the, the, the economic rigor, academic rigor that uh, some people think is important for the Fed. Good idea? I think that would be a fine idea. Both of okay. them are extremely talented. And okay. uh, one thing we know about the president, he likes people who are, are, are talented and he likes talent. Good. All right. what, what, uh, educate me. What, what should the Fed chair do? What should the Fed chair do, new Fed chair do that the present Fed chair isn't doing or hasn't been done in the past? How should they distinguish themselves? What actions? What are the right policies here? Well, the interesting thing about what, what, what the, uh, the Fed chair and what President Trump has on his plate, which is NAFTA, tax cuts and, and tax policy and, and, and appointing a Fed chair, is it's really, uh, really about, uh, it's, it's more about who gets the money, who, who benefits the money and who gets to decide. And in those three those three uh, legs to the stool. The who gets to decide is really the the Fed chair. That's it's the most powerful economic position in the world. It's appointed by is the it? president. Okay. Uh, and 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 that's it. And that, and what we're really talking about as much as policy is who gets to decide that policy. And that's where the criticism comes. Um, and um, uh, so so the 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 interesting part about about this appointment is. is is it is an extremely important position in that they can either do harm or do no harm. Um, there's really uh, there's there's really not a, a, a significant hysterical uh, 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 distinction between the people that are up for appointment. All of them will be good. The issue is um, really simply: does the federal government? run the economy or should um, the citizens have the money? Then that gets back to tax cuts. Who gets the money? Is it the government that gets the money? Do the people get the money? And in the Fed policy, uh, you know, we, we've had a situation where uh, most of the people who have run the Fed, uh, last ch- 
chairs were uh, Janet Yellen and then Ben Bernanke. Uh, the economists, uh, the progressive economists who like most people, they say, they pat themselves on the back. They say they've done a great job. Everything's wonderful. What a great, they, 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 they helped us through the crisis of 2008. Great job. Let's keep doing it. Well, the problem with that analysis, and, and this is where President Trump won the election, there's a lot of people not working. There's a lot of things wrong with the economy. And, and, and every time uh, the average American citizen hears an academic tell them how good everything is, how, how high employment is, the low unemployment rate, there's millions, tens of millions of people not working. They don't believe that. They don't like that. Yeah, yeah. So what, they look at their the, own experience, what, right? They don't like it. And, and, and you know, every time, uh, you know, a, a progressive uh, Nobel laureate economist says, hey, we're at full, un- we're, we're at full employment. We, uh, you know, are, 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 have this, this notion of an uh, output gap. There's no, there's no gap between our potential of output and what we're actually producing. Well, that's just not, it's just not empirically accurate. We have more potential in this economy, and we have the ability in the economy with more potential and more growth, because our growth has been abysmal, to employ more people. And that's really the distinction in terms of what the Fed chair should or shouldn't do. The Fed is basically, their, their, their mission is monetary policy predominantly and regulatory oversight. Monetary policy is making sure inflation is in check and making sure we're, the economy is running at a full employment. Uh, well, I think, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I, let me just insert the question and keep going. For most of us, what we associate the Fed with is whether interest rates will go up or go down, whether they'll raise interest rates or lower them. Is there a liberal or conservative view on this? Is there orthodoxy? There is orthodoxy. Um, interest rates are part are one of two things the Fed looks at in monetary policy. One is the rate of the, the, whether interest rates are higher or lower, and then the other part that they look at in monetary policy is the employment uh, in the country. Um, interest rates are supposed to be a measurement of risk. In fact, the Fed uses interest rates to spur what they think is economic growth. Um, and the orthodoxy is, is the more progressives think that they should be spurring it and do what they call quantitative easing and all those kinds of things, you know, push money into the system. Mm. Some of the more conservatives would, would have a different view of it. But what it's not really, it, it, it's not really what the topic should be and what is what most people in the world are thinking of today is that, do I have a job? Do I have a job and can yeah. I get a job? So while the Fed is important, it's, as I mentioned earlier, the most powerful the U.S. chairman of the, of the Fed, the most powerful economic position in the world, has limitations. Its limitations are really to oversee as one of many people um, what the economy is doing, but they, they can't create a job. Um, and 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 uh, and that's really the limitation of what the Fed chairman's uh, position can be. Intra- you know, um, to your point, we want lower interest rates or higher interest rates. I'm a conservative, so what do I want? Well, it, it depends. You want interest rates that are a good measurement of what the risk is. Um, something that's too extreme on either side. As an example, we had in the 2008 uh, financial crisis. The argument was just that. 
did the Fed have interest rates too low, which spurred the spurred the crisis, or were, should the, the interest rates should they have been higher? Okay. And what ended up happening is there was an argument between actually John Taylor and um, 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 forgot the I forgot the name of the Fed chairman before the vice chair of the book was Bernanke. Uh, before him, uh, uh, Greenspan. Alan Greenspan. <laughs> there, was an okay. there was an argument on that topic between Alan Greenspan and, and, and Greenspan and John Taylor. Greens, John Taylor said interest rates were too low, and it caused, in part, the 2008 okay. crisis. Um, Greenspan said, well, the Fed really only controlled short-term interest rates, and long-term interest rates were the, were the issue. So he, his, his response was, we don't, as the Fed, have that much influence. I see. So, okay. again, these are economists. These are heavyweight economists arguing about monetary policy. Yeah. And I'd like to express and impress upon your listeners, jobs and wages are important. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. I'm feeling like I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to them and who's chairman, and I'm feeling that's okay. That is very much okay. <laughs> very much okay. But I do you care about... An, you don't want an unelected official being okay. <laughs> in the forefront of your mind. But uh, let's move on to tax reform, because I do care about that. I care about my taxes. What, what's going on? What's your sense of what's going on? We, um, we've talked to a couple of congressmen about this. They think things are going to pass. Um, what, what's your sense of it? I believe we're going to have tax reform, and this is what's going on is a, a, a struggle also as to who gets the money. Um, the, the orthodoxy from the progressives are the government must grow. It needs more money. It needs more revenue to pay for things like Social Security and health care and, and, and other kinds of things the government needs money for. They want they, the progressives who who don't want tax cuts, want the government to have more. Those who want tax cuts want people to have more. It's, it's really as simple okay. as who gets the money. Government or the people, okay? Correct. Okay. And, um, go ahead. And, and I believe no matter what form the tax uh, reform takes, because I believe there will be one, we will end up with people getting more money. The part that bothers me, I think we're going to get tax reform too. The part that bothers me is, well, you just hinted at it in, in terms of the, the larger picture. But wouldn't it be helpful in all this to be cutting some entitlements? Uh, uh, this is, you know, it seems to me this is good conservative and Republican orthodoxy, I can use that word again, uh, to make cuts and that uh, there are these massive programs that uh, we could adjust, Social Security, Medicare, for the future, not for present recipients. That could make a huge difference. And it looks to me like, I mean, I know that's part of the budget process, not the tax uh, reform package, but simultaneously, <clears throat> I mean, you could do a lot more with tax reform. If you had more margin, you'd have more margin if you cut some of these huge entitlements, no? Absolutely. And that's one of the Achilles heels of not only the, the Democrats, but the Republicans. It seems like everyone in Congress is focusing on we're losing revenue and how do we make up that lost revenue? So they take it from one and yeah. try to uh, 
repay it from another. That goes into who gets the money and who gets to decide. And 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 you're you're absolutely right. Um, uh, you you there's not a silver bullet, but if you're going to reduce the revenue, a really simple way of, of offsetting that is reducing expenditures. Yeah. We spoke recently. Uh, you know, France and their economic finance minister right. mentioned specifically stated we know in the history of France public spending does not increase employment right uh, and if we're if the fo- if I go back to what I said earlier the focus should be on jobs and wages okay. and if public spending doesn't increase employment we should not do that yeah okay I mean I think it'd be great essential for the president to get tax reform because he needs a legislative win here big deal and, you know, if you got the corporate tax rate down, I think that'd be a big deal. You and I have talked about that before. And if you adjust the individual rates for the sake of the middle class, good. But you're not going to get into the big stuff and big savings until you really get serious about the entitlements. And it may just be that, you know, Donald Trump is this new kind of Republican who, you know, doesn't seem that disposed to making big cuts. Am I wrong about that? I, you know, he doesn't talk about this very much. I don't know. I hate to say yeah, that, okay. but I don't that's know. A fair, that's a fair answer. Let, let's go to, uh, you just reminded me in the limited time we have. Yes, the last time we talked, you did this uh, excellent uh, lecture to us, I'm going to say lecture, uh, or actually instruction to us, on how the president, our president, was being imitated by President of France and uh, India, uh, how interesting this was. Um, you made the point that other countries, often more left-wing than us, are actually instituting fair trade deals, too and mimicking President Trump's efforts. Uh, you turned that into an article. Uh, that article's been published. We have a link up on our site. Um, and uh, a lot of comments um, a lot of comments about it. How does this connect with NAFTA and the NAFTA renegotiations? I, I bet a lot of the audience doesn't appreciate, I didn't until you know, a few hours ago, that we're in the, in, in, a, in the fourth round of NAFTA renegotiation. What's going on here? The president is not a fan of NAFTA. The president is not a fan of the agreement of NAFTA from 20-some-odd years ago. Right. Um, but he's, I, I think that where he stands with negotiations is extremely encouraging and in some ways exciting. We, we, hear, uh, we, hear, we hear headlines with NAFTA. Every, everything that, that anyone writes about it is uh, it's, the, the talks are gloomy. Um, something with softwood lumber is going to skyrocket housing costs so they don't have affordable housing. It goes on and on. Everything that's a, a pejorative description of the misery because the president and his uh, his advisors, Wilbur Ross and Mr. Lighthouser, are Lighthouser are, are, are negotiating a re, a redo of this agreement. They're in fact doing a fine job, and they in fact are getting traction with both Mexico and Canada. Um, as an example, um, the issue of trade imbalance, Canada has recently admitted and described that they would like to work with the United States, with Mexico, to have wages in Mexico increase. Way back when, when we did NAFTA, the idea was Mexico gets more trade opportunities. Over time, wages will increase and things will balance out. Well, wages haven't increased in Mexico. That's a fact. Yeah. So what? How do, you, how do you deal with this? And now we have both the United States and Canada saying part of the NAFTA negotiations needs to have some benchmarks and metrics for, 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 for wages in Mexico. 
Now, how can anyone say that's a bad thing? Even people in Mexico should say, that's good. We want wages to improve. So here we have a trade agreement, a very important trade agreement, where we, we have, because of President Trump's leadership saying, I don't like what has happened. I want to change it and improve it. Um, this is what we're trying to do. Now, what he also says is, if I can't improve it, I'm not going to continue with it. Well, that, that, that's okay, too, yeah. because I can tell you, Mexico and Canada have said the same thing. Canada has said the identical thing that if we can't get what we want, if we can't uh, protect Canadian interests, we're not going to do it. Now, that's a hollow threat, but that's what they say. Um, and so what, while President Trump is working on, uh, on, 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 on improving the trade situation for the United States first, but also um, because of energy trade with Mexico and energy trade with Canada, and other and other kinds of trade, the the, the negotiators for both those company countries are seeing some benefits um, with his with, with his position, his strident positions. The reporters don't like his strident positions. Industry who had had a good deal before and had, that deal might change might not like his strident position. But he's going to succeed, I believe. All right, so we'll renegotiate the terms of NAFTA, making them more favorable to the U.S., right? To the U.S., which also should have and could have some ancillary benefits to both Canada and Mexico. Okay. Joel, let me ask you to comment on um, the economy generally. I was uh, shocked. I, I flip around. I get up early, real early in the morning, as you know. And uh, flip around all the channels, and I was shocked to see two liberal economists on MSNBC. By setting this up right, you see where I'm going, or maybe mm -hmm. no, saying, "Got to give it to Trump." Uh, we didn't expect uh, two uh, quarters with three percent growth in each at this point, particularly after the hurricanes and the and, and floods and so on. But uh, the economy is moving. Is it, is it moving? It really is moving, isn't it? It, it really is moving. That gets back to. Um the, we talked about Fed policy. What the real policy should be is growth. What, what growth means? Growth means more people are working. Growth means that we don't pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, we have full employment. No, we don't have full employment. Let's get more people working. We have a lot of unfilled jobs, which we need to get people educated to fill them. Uh, educated, not in terms of the college degrees, but in trades. And the more people we have working, the better the economy is. That is that is where you go from under two percent growth to more than three percent growth. That's a very on a, on a on an economy like the United States, which is eighteen trillion dollars annually. That's a massive amount of change. Yeah, yeah, uh, it sure is. It sure is, and this is a big part of uh, of the campaign and the big part of the promises. Do you have any comment on? It would be an affectation not to ask you. We just have about two minutes left, but any comment on the New York City um, terror attack? Oh, that's question one. Go ahead. Any comment there? I don't want this to become familiar. It's becoming right. familiar, right? And the reactions are becoming obvious. Each time one of these uh, events happens more frequently, uh, knee-jerk reactions are, we hope that the people who are part of the community that the terrorist was involved with aren't 
treated poorly. That's the yeah, first reaction sure, for so sure, many. Yeah. I want the people in the United States to be protected, and I want the people who were hurt to be honored. First. Right, that's most. first. First, second, and third, maybe. First. First, second, and third. That's what I want. And I'd like for... I'd like for, for, for Americans to agree on one thing, and they should agree on that. Can we not protect our country from people who want to kill us? Can we not honor those who, who, who got decimated, civilians, out enjoying, enjoying uh, an event, enjoying the time? It, 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 first and foremost, that's where we should, we should uh, put our... our, our our, yes, sir. our efforts and, yes, and our sir. minds. I don't want to. I don't want to disregard others. I just don't want that to be the primary reaction every time we have one of these events. We don't want to become Europe. We don't want to say, "Well, this is how we live now, and we just need to go about our lives and understand that this is how we live." Do not accept this as part of the normal course of things. We cannot. I accept appreciate it. what you just said. We 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 should. That's exactly. That's well said, Bill. This is not how we, we don't deserve this, and then we should not accept this. Okay. I, I, I affirm what you just said. Joel, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Um, always enlightening, especially for me. I don't know this stuff you do, and it's great. I'm getting my own seminar, as is uh, the audience, uh, those interested. Thank you, Joel Farkas. Thank you very much. All right. We have to leave it there for today's episode. That's a show. We'll have more. Thank you for listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Tell your friends, and I will talk to you next week. Please get everybody you know to listen and subscribe. It's free. BillBennett.com. 